This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Hear the word of God. Mark 3, verse 7 through 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Dumia, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Peter. Bernargus, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. You may be seated. I... uh... As you can tell from your worship folder, I try and get an outline in there every now and again, and about 80% of the time that works. About 90% of the time that, that works, I change it by the time we get to this point. Uh, but by this, uh, this week, there's just, by the time we needed to print on Friday, which we try and know what we're going to do on Thursday, but by the time it was time to print on Friday, I still had no idea Um, The penny had not dropped for me yet at that point as to how to take this text and try and line it up for us and best outline it so that we best understand it. And so um, to make a long story short, um, the penny still has not dropped in my mind. Um, I I would say that that this is the most preparation that I have put probably into a sermon since we started this church a year ago. And I feel the least prepared There's just a lot going on here, and yet I didn't want to take any one section of this text and break it apart and deal with just it, because I think that what's going on here in this passage is that there's this this radical contrast going on between the crowds, the faceless mob, and the disciples whom Jesus wants to have a relationship with. And there's this radical contrast as to what the mob is up to and what they're trying to gain from Jesus and then what Jesus is calling the disciples to. Um, so I didn't want to leave any of it out, um, but, but I, I have somewhat of an outline in my head, and I'll just go ahead and give it to you now in case you're the type that likes to write this stuff out. Um, first would be um, the crowd a, a, as an opportunity and a threat. Um, the next one um, would be that, let's see, what did I say the next one was going to be? Oh, yes, the brilliant and humble solution or plan or strategy. I had in my mind lots of business analogies going on this week because 
And yet I, I kept not liking that because this text is primarily about relationship. But you can kind of sense how business themes were running around in my head, like SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, and uh, the plan, the strategy, the philosophy. Uh, these were running through my head. And then there's this third point that I don't know that we'll get to because I'm only going to go for about 20 minutes this morning. And I don't want to rob this point of its incredible value, especially as we think about the baptism of an infant and the value that it is for parents to put a name on their children. But the third point is this, that as you prepare to be used by God in his kingdom, preparation 101, you gotta know that you got, that you gotta know that you got a name. Okay, so those are the ideas. Let's see if I can say them again so that I remember them. The opportunity and the threat of the crowd. The solution, strategy, plan, although I hate all those words. And the last but not least, the preparation to be sent out into the mission. Preparation 101, you've got to know that you've got a name. All right, let me pray. Jesus, I say right along with our song this morning, our song of worship, that I'd like to see you take my lips and let them be filled with messages from you. Would you please use me this morning in my friends' lives? Would you give us a deeper experience of you, a better understanding of your word? Would you give us more confidence in your gospel? Would you give us a larger view of our sin and brokenness so that we might repent of it and find in you life? Lord Jesus, I do pray that you would come and teach us, for we need you. Amen. First, the crowd is an opportunity or threat Read with me back in verse seven. Jesus withdrew from his disciples. You remember what has just happened previously. We've been going through this for months. Right now, if you're new to us, we're just walking through a book of the Bible together, which is our habit, and we're in Mark. Um, we've been going a couple months, and we're now in chapter three, and he, he's withdrawing with his disciples because he now knows that the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders in Israel, and the Herodians, which are those leaders in Israel who are loyal to Rome, that these arch enemies have decided to join together in verse six and try and figure out a way to destroy him. So Matthew's account of this makes it really clear that Jesus knows this is going on and he withdraws with his disciples, okay? And so he's withdrawing, but when he withdraws and he's desiring to have privacy, he's desiring to have um, rest, he's desiring to connect with the Father in prayer. We read about that in Luke. And what happens is these enormous crowds follow him. Listen to where these crowds are from. First, it's starting in verse seven and eight. Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. Now these are all very Jewish regions, very Jewish geographic areas. And then second, he says that there are some from Idumea, which is 120 miles south of Capernaum, which is where they are right now. We're talking way past even Jerusalem, which is south of Capernaum as well. He talks about Idumea and those that are, that are across the Jordan or Transjordan regions. And these regions are both Jewish and Gentile. That is, there are some Jews who have been sent out and exiled out into these areas, but these areas are largely Gentile or non-Jew areas. Okay, and then he also says, as we keep reading, that there are folks coming from Tyre and Sidon, which is about 50 miles north of where they are now, northwest. And this is an exclusively Gentile region. Very few Jews would be anywhere in and around Tyre and Sidon. And the point is this, is that there's this amazing opportunity in that the nations themselves are coming to Jesus in order to experience him. I mean, if you think about this in a time without trains and planes and automobiles, in a time where people walked to get where they needed to go, we're talking about a 170-mile radius here. That's how popular Jesus has become by this point in the Gospel of Mark. And this is, I believe, is one of the statements that talks about his greatest popularity 
in his life and ministry. I mean, he just has an enormous crowd gathering. I mean, you could think Beatles. I mean, you could think Coldplay. You could think Obama on his little train ride right now. I mean, just throngs trying to get in and around these people. That's what's going on. And this is the opportunity. The opportunity, the Old Testament says very clearly that Jesus is going to bring his kingdom, his blessing, his gospel, his salvation to the nations. That if you remember, the whole point of the nation of Israel was he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless the entire earth. I'm going to bless all the tribes, all the tongues, all the nations. And this is an enormous opportunity because the nations are coming to Jesus because they've heard. What have they heard? Verse 10, he had healed so many. So all with diseases pressed around him to touch him. So now this is the opportunity, but at the same time, anytime you do a strengths, weaknesses analysis, anytime you do an opportunity threat analysis, anytime I think about what my gifts are, as a human being, I, I always have to look at the flip side of that, and that is your strengths and weaknesses are always related. Your opportunities and your threats are always related as well. And this is an incredible opportunity for Jesus, and at the same time, the threat is so profound that he walks away from the opportunity. The threat is so profound that he walks away from the opportunity. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. The the threat is not primarily physical. Even though these words are words of conflict, they're they're words of of grasping and and, and gripping and falling upon and arresting. These words, for example, in verse 9, lest they crush him. In verse 10, that they were pressing around him. The threat is not primarily physical, although if you've been reading in City Bible Reading, which is this initiative where we're reading through the Old and New Testament together, just this week in chapter 12, it said there were so many thousands of people following Jesus that they were trampling themselves. I will tell you, as I thought this week about what has been now uh, coined as the miracle on the Hudson, of course, this U.S. Airways flight, um, this heroic pilot turns the plane around and lands it on the Hudson River. And I've not been able to watch the news for a couple of days, so there could be like earth-shattering news that I don't know of about this flight. But from what I understand, all the people were saved, and this, this pilot is a hero. And when I was watching that on Thursday night, to me, that the, the miracle that happened on the Hudson was not the pilot's ability to get the plane into the water without anyone drowning or dying from impact. To me, the miracle on the Hudson is this. Those 150 people did not trample one another trying to get out of the plane. Because in life and death situations all around the world, when something becomes life and death, people begin to trample one another in order to get what they think is going to bring them life. And so to me, the miracle on the Hudson, and I've heard numerous accounts on that Thursday night of people praying and asking God to be gracious to them and to deliver them, and this is the deliverance that he gave them. But those 150 people didn't kill each other trying to find life. And that's what's happening here. These crowds, these enormous crowds, these thousands of people, if you can take your mind back to what I gave you as an illustration to see what's going on here, don't think Obama and the Democratic followers who are at these train stops cheering for him. If you could think of Republicans there trying to get at him, particularly really conservative Republicans who would like to just strangle his neck. I mean, that's more of what it is feeling like here. This is not good that these people are clamoring for Jesus in this way because they're trying to use Jesus. They think 
that they know what they need. And instead of going and submitting to Jesus in relationship, they're going and grasping for what they want. This happened to us earlier in the book of Mark with the paralyzed man. Do you remember what happened there? Jesus shocked his socks off by not saying you're healed when they lowered him down through the roof because he had healed so many people. Of course, that's part of what Jesus is doing. What shocked his socks off is Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. That's the incredibly shocking part is that, again, we have thousands and thousands of people going to Jesus in order to get what they want from him and not to receive what he has for them. Do you see this? Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He says to his disciples, get me a boat. Why does he say, get me a boat? I mean, here's the one who can walk on water. Here's the one that can pass through the enemy because it's not yet his time for them to arrest him. Here's the one that could just say, chill out, and it would happen. Why does he want a boat? If you go to chapter four, verse one, and we'll pick this up again later because, again, we're going to walk through this entire book, it tells us why he wanted a boat. He wanted to teach them. Jesus knew that part of what he wanted to do for these people was heal them of their physical infirmities. But what he wanted more than anything was to teach them what has already been described in Mark's gospel as the gracious words of the kingdom that only through him, repenting from what we're trying to find life in and grabbing a hold of who he is and what he has for us, that's the only place to find life. And Jesus wants a boat, not because he wants to get away, but he doesn't want them coming any closer to him until he can get at what is the core problem of what's going on with them, which is that they need to hear his message of repentance and faith and life as it relates to him as their savior. Um, This is an illustration that I've been thinking about for several weeks, and I couldn't figure out how to tie it in yet. And I'm not so convinced that, that this is a good illustration at this point either. But I think that the tagline at the end of the illustration is very powerful. And, and I don't know if Jesus used to give titles um, to his sermons. I, I've never been able to do that. I'm such a control freak and weirdo. And, and I'm such, every word's gotta be right. I can never just settle on a title. And so you're trying to take like 14 or 15 hours of study and that's why outlines are so hard. You've got these 15 hours of study. And you're trying to boil it into 25 digestible minutes. And so if you talk about a title, you're trying to take 15 hours of the infinite word of God, and you're trying to cram it into four or five words. I mean, it's nearly impossible. But let's say that Jesus being the infinite one, infinite one who's teaching, let's say he gives his title sermons. I'm only going to tell you this story because I think the tagline at the end of the story would be the best possible title for what Jesus wants to teach them. There's a parable. Uh, it means it's a story. It's a made-up short story by a guy named Woodrow Kroll, and maybe you've heard this. And if I told you what the name was, which is at the end, I would, I would ruin it for all of us, but you might instantaneously know it. But this story is about this incredibly wealthy man whose teenage son, and he began to experience distance in their relationship. And so what this incredibly wealthy man began to do is he, he began to realize that his son had this, this interest and this inkling and this love for art. And um, so this, this really wealthy man began to build an art collection with his son, flying all around the world and gathering up these pieces of art, these, these Rembrandts and Van Goghs and, and Picassos. And, and he's traveling around the world. And of course, um, uh, they're collecting this massive art collection and they're having so much fun doing it together. And then one day the son gets, gets a letter in the mail and the letter is from the U.S. government and he's been drafted and he's expected to show up and serve uh, in Vietnam. 
And so um, Woodrow Kroll continues to write the story that the, son, uh, the son's dad said, listen, I've got connections. We can take care of this. Do you want me to take care of this? And the son's like, no, I really don't want you to. You know, you served our country and my grandfather served our country. I want to go serve our country. Every day that the son was gone, he would write letters to the father. Every day. And so the father would know every day that he would get to the mailbox and there would be letters. And some days there would be a lapse because of how it takes time to get mail across the pond. But by and large, just about every day there was a letter there from his son. And one day that turned into two, that turned into a week, there were no letters. And so the father's gut told him, something's happened to my precious son. A couple days later, a telegram comes from the United States government and confirms his greatest nightmare. And that is that his son has died as a hero in combat. About six months later, the father is still very despondent, as you can imagine, very depressed, um, very, very angry. And, and a man shows up at the door in a soldier's uniform, knocks on the door. The father opens it, and there's a man there holding a package under his right arm. And he says, listen, I, I want you to know that I am the man your son was carrying away from battle when he was shot through the heart and died. And he was my best friend, my very best friend. We used to spend night upon night talking about what it would like to be home and what it would like to be around the ones we love and what it would be like doing what we did with the ones we loved. And I know that you love art and I know that you love to build this collection with your son. And so what I did is when I got released, and I was sent home. I sat down and I painted this portrait of your son. And I'm not much of a painter. In fact, I'm really bad at it. But I'm really proud of this piece of art. And what I'd like to do is give it to you and say to you, thanks for the life that you gave uh, to your son and that he gave to me. And the father unwraps the picture and he's just astounded by it. And he says, look, it's not really that good of a picture, but there's one part of my son. There's one aspect of my son that you have captured beyond all other aspects. And that's his smile. That is my son's smile. The soldier said, well, that's the smile he would smile when we talked about being home and when he talked about being with you in and around art. And so the father took his most prestigious piece of art and he moved it to another room. And the only piece of art in the main room as you entered into his collection was this picture of his son. And he puts this picture of his son right up on the wall with lights just like these banners, with lights lighting it up so that everyone would see it. And of course, people continued, art collectors and, and men and women who owned art shops and just people who, who knew that this man had this amazing collection would continue to make appointments to come, come see him. And now, for some reason, the dad had started allowing visitors to come back again. Of course, Woodrow Kroll lets us know the reason is that he has a picture of his most valued thing, his most valued son. And so... The folks would come, and of course he would say, now listen, I'm going to start this, this, this tour with you seeing the most amazing picture that I own, the most valuable picture I own, and, and here it is. It's a picture of my son. And people would try and be respectful as they looked at the son, but all of them had this sense of agitation and this impatience of wanting to get to the good stuff, wanting to get to the Rembrandts and the Van Goghs and the Picassos and the Raphaels. And one day the father dies of a broken heart. And the whole art world has been waiting for this event because they know that there's going to be an art sale. They know that they can go and bid for these magnificent pieces of art. And they get there and they all line themselves up and they're there waiting for this art that's been in this, this house for so long to come available to the public again. And you guessed it, the very first picture that comes up 
forbidding is the picture of the sun. And the man in charge of the auction says, who will start the bidding at $200? No one said anything. How about $100? Can I get someone to bid $100? Nothing. To make a long story short, drops all the way down to $10, and a voice in the back says, I'll bid $10 for that picture, none other than the soldier who had drawn the picture in the first place. And the auctioneer, with incredible patience, and, and frankly, with more patience than you would recommend at an auction because you want to get going to the other things, continues to belabor the point if someone has got to give more than $10 for this picture. And finally, the crowds got really agitated. Get to the Rembrandts. Enough with the sun. Let's keep moving. And finally, the auctioneer bangs his gavel on the table. And he says, the picture of the sun has been sold to the soldier in the back for $10. And then he banged his gavel again and he said, the auction's closed. Everybody's like, what? What are you talking about? How can the auction possibly be closed? And the auctioneer said, I was paid a handsome fee to run this auction with one stipulation, that whoever got the sun got it all. That's what Jesus wants to get in the boat and tell these crowds. If you look at what he's doing with the disciples, living with them, giving them names, relating to them, giving them nicknames, getting so intimate with them that one day John will put his head on the chest of Jesus our Lord, that he, that he and John and Peter will play this game of who's gonna betray you and he, he dips the morsel in the cup. He says, listen, whoever I dip this morsel in this cup and I hand it to you, that's who it is. Jesus did not want to come and be used. Listen, if his only goal was to heal people, he would have laid down on a table and said, form a line and come touch me and you'll be healed. If his only goal was to simply teach them from a distance what they might know, he would have invented technology far beyond him letting it happen in his world and in his history. And he would have instantaneously had this technology around the globe and he would have showed up and he would have taught and everything would have been okay. But this is what Jesus has come to do. to be in love with us, to be related to us, to name us, and to shepherd us. You see, we come to Jesus, if we could just stop right now and think of one point of application, it would be this, that we, even Christians, come to Jesus and Christianity with our list of things we'd like to buy at the auction. And not at the top of the list for many of us is the Son. Jesus is saying, of course I'm going to heal you. I got the new heavens and the new earth coming where there'll be no more pain and no more tears and no more sorrow. I'm going to heal you. But first, I want you to relate to me as your savior, your Lord, your best friend, your older brother, your righteousness. Learn to relate to me this way and we'll take care of the other stuff later. later. Whoever gets the son gets it all. I mean, we come to him. You know, I'd, I'd really like to have a spouse 
I'd really like to have romance. I'd really like to have children. I'd really like to have freedom from this guilty feeling I, I feel inside for all the horrible things I keep doing. What I'd really like to have is I'd like to have um, a calling and I'd like to have money and I'd like to have power and authority. And, I, I, and I'd like to have, I'd really love to have joy and contentment and peace and rest. I'd love to have all these things you promise as the fruit of the spirit, but what I'm not really all that interested in is the spirit part. Because I want to be in control. I want to come to you and pick and choose like I'm at a convenience store what I want from you instead of coming and just loving you. I'll just stop and pray. Lord Jesus, we'll just pick back up next week. Um, But I come to you repenting because I know that I use you. And I know that I come and even ministry itself is something that I want to do to earn life and to earn a name and to earn significance and to earn your love. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you give us a name long before we do ministry. We thank you that you give us a name long before you create us. We thank you that you give us an identity and you give us value and you give us relationship long before we bring anything to the table. Lord Jesus, I do pray that whatever has come from my mouth that is of you, that you would sink it deep into our hearts and we would chew on it and we would believe it and it would change us. And I pray that anything that's come out of my mouth that is not from you, that you would cause it to fall to the ground quickly and to be trampled on by our feet. Because what we need is you and what you have to offer us in your word. In your name we pray, amen.